Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Our first panelists are our old friends who we are glad to have back. And I invited them here because these guys are passionate about television and storytelling on television. So please welcome back Jeff Greenstein and Josh Friedman. Very good. Right. You can keep uh, it in order. Just so you're comfortable. All right, yes. <laughs> Our next panelist has an interesting background, which we will uh, let him tell you about. It includes a somewhat abrupt career shift. Um, his first credits were on the WB series Everwood. After that, he moved to Friday Night Lights and is currently co-executive producer on Parenthood. Please welcome David Hudgens. Yay. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you. Uh, and our final panelist has worked her way up in the industry from an assistant on features and an executive on features as well. Um, with early credits on 10 Things I Hate About You, she is the creator of MTV's awesome show, Awkward. Please welcome Lauren <laughs> Unerich. Yay. Um, welcome, guys. Thank you for being here. Uh, as I was telling these guys and you guys, uh, I've just been downloading uh, Awkward and Parenthood into my brains. So let's jump right in on those, and then we'll get to these guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Lauren, tell us about Awkward. Where did the show come from? We'll get into your personal history later, your background. But sure. I'm really curious about pitching this show. Um, to whom did you pitch it? Did you spec it first? Uh, How no. did it work? So um, I had a general meeting at MTV at the time. They were sort of reinventing uh, a, scripted, uh, a scripted department. Uh, they had actually brought in um, a couple people who had done scripted television, including Justin Levy, who um, worked on Friday Night Lights, actually, um, back in the day as an executive. And so... I just had a general meeting with him, and he was telling me about the kind of shows that they wanted to do at MTV. They wanted to do shows that you would never see on ABC Family or The CW, and I had it developed for both of those networks extensively, mm -hmm. so I knew sort of what he was talking about. Can, let, us, let us know, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you guys a lot because I want to get into specifics, but what does that mean? You know, what, what were they looking for that isn't CW or Well, any, I would say uh, CW ABC is Family. sort of like glossy fantasy perfume ads, and then... Uh, <laughs> That's my interpretation. Um, and then uh, ABC Families, you know, it's really soft, you know, family programming. There's a lot of good programming on there, but they wanted to do something that was a little edgier. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, to take a risk, I mean, water cooler was the idea behind. Like any idea that they developed had to sort of have some kind of water cooler element, which is really vague and abstract. But I left that meeting and sort of, you know, thought about, at the time, I, had, uh, I hadn't written on 10 Things I Hate About You. I, I hadn't written uh, a teen show. Um, but I really thought about my experiences in high school and, and what would be sort of a different way to go about a stigma, um, which wouldn't be, you know, coming out or being pregnant or um, doing drugs. And I thought about where I grew up, there was a kid who killed himself every year. Um, <laughs> not Wait, that that's the same a, kid? Just a, you know, a different kid. Well, that's the um, CW. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, not that that's like a positive thing, but it sort of like hit me, the idea of like sometimes being a teenager makes you want to die and that this catalyst of a... Uh, a faux suicide attempt that everybody construes as a suicide attempt because you have a, a main character who wasn't, she didn't sort of fit in any sort of world. She just was sort of an invisible girl and every girl who was invisible. Um, and that being sort of branded as a girl who's unstable would maybe be the worst thing that could happen to you in high school. And that's sort of like where the idea sort of came from, and I had this idea of that she gets this terrible on the on the on the heels of losing her virginity in the closet to at summer camp to a really you know cute guy in her class who like basically says like no one can know that that I like you. Um, that then she gets home and she gets this anonymous letter, which I call a carefrontation, of about all the things that like are wrong with her that she should change, starting with you know uh, stopping such a pussy. Um, and, you know, there she writes in her blog, sometimes being a teen teenager makes you want to die and has, you know, somewhat of a Rube Goldberg sort of accident that leads people to believe she tried to kill herself because that's the last thing she wrote mm -hmm. in her blog. And so it, the idea of sort of investigating and going through a girl who has so much working against her and finding the positive that, like, you know, be careful what you wish for. All she wants to be is visible, and she gets visibility in the worst possible way. Um, and then, of course, I'm a girl, so I wanted to have it have like a, a really strong, you know, romantic element to it. So there's an unrealistic love triangle that happens in my show. Um, <laughs> but I also I wanted to sort of take the genre and put a spin on it. The mean girl is heavy. She's a she's a fat cheerleader, and um, there was a fat cheerleader in my high school um, who was also very mean. And uh, and I thought. And, you know, and to this day, people are always like, oh, my God, I totally, I knew a Sadie in high school. Everybody knew that mean, heavy girl. And, um, and that, you know, that the boys wouldn't be the archetypal, like, one's a douchebag that's a bad guy, and one's, like, a good nerdy guy. I wanted them both to be viable, interesting, and that they're both complicated. And so I think... Uh, I just wanted to sort of, you know, and obviously, like, I'm spoiler if you haven't seen my show, that, like, she finds out that, you know, the first season is all about figuring out who wrote this letter that becomes a touchstone to her journey of figuring out who she is. And then she finds out it's from her mother. And so that's what we um, are exploring in the second season, which is now airing. Um, that there's, you know, for me, a show also having at, at the underbelly a relationship between mother and daughter yeah. was going to be a cool thing to do yeah. on MTV. Yeah, the, the relationship with the parents is not something that's always played up in these sort of yeah. teen fair. Yeah, and her mom was a teen mom. So mm -hmm. her mom had that stigma when she was her age. Her mom was that girl back in the day. And yeah. so she's that girl who tried to kill herself. Her mom was that girl who got pregnant. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, you know, 
It's interesting to hear you talk about the show, which is, you know, you're essentially pitching the show to us. Yeah, because um, no one watches it here. <laughs> <laughs> you guys love it, right? <laughs> Correct. Um, but, you know, oftentimes when pitching a show, you know, we kind of can get up, caught up in talking about these secondary characters, you know, sure. these romantic interests or the best friend who, I mean, both of the, the best friends in this are hilarious and colorful characters. Uh, but I think what gets lost is describing your lead. You know, Jenna is a complicated character, and she is more than, you know, the sum of these events that have happened to her. How do you pitch that character? Well, you know, it, she, her, she, by design, was sort of, you know, I wasn't invisible in high school, and I wasn't the most popular girl, and I also wasn't, like, you know, um, an outcast either. But, I, you know, it's like as you get older and, you know, Facebook came into fruition, I would get Facebook by people who were, like, from my high school, and I didn't know who they were. And, uh, and I just thought about, wow, these are all, you know, you kind of know who the outcasts are and you know who the popular kids are. But then there's all this, this, this contingent of invisible kids, right, who have lives and dreams and fantasies and are living their life at the same time you are and going through the same things. Um, and taking that kind of character and exploring her universe of sort of having, you know, being thrust into the spotlight and then having to deal with it. And um, for, 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 for me, for Jenna, I wanted to create a character that was always trying to do the right thing. Like, she can't help but be a nice person. It's just who she is. And she's, you know, confronted with being a nice person, even given that her mom isn't so nice sometimes and that her friends aren't so nice sometimes. And there's a lot... She's just trying to figure it out. And so what I did was, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really, I was always taught, like, don't use voiceover. It's lazy device. And, uh, and I realized that I couldn't really tell this story unless I got into her head. So there's Jenna to the outside world, and then there's Jenna in her head. And then I had to, like, because I'm such a crazy, like, I can't be construed as a lazy writer. So I had to tie it to something. So that's when she started to be a blogger. So her voiceover is her blog. So there are rules to the voiceover. It's all in past tense. Even as you're watching it sort of like hit the moment, you realize this, she's telling the story later on. And sometimes we catch up, you know, in real time to her blog as she's blogging it out. But um, that, that was a way to sort of like really explain who she was and sort of her journey as we see it. Um, and keeping her complicated and interesting and just being a real girl. And so we, I always come from a place of, like, what would I do in this moment? Like, how would I, you know, keeping her complicated and interesting, because um, I'm so complicated and interesting, um, <laughs> you know, uh, what would I do if I were Jenna Hamilton? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about how that, you know, works with your room, because they're part of the show, too. They are. Uh, they have a voice in the show, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, but we'll get back to you, David. Uh, so as I told you, I, I watched season three of Parenthood in the past, let's say, two weeks. <laughs> it, was, it was more like the past week. Um, I usually I usually try to gather as many writers from one show before I talk about this, but we'll let you handle it. Right. right. Um, take us inside this season, where in a lot of things happened to the characters. Um, when you guys were entering the season, what was already known? What was left hanging from the season before? What were kind of the signposts of the season that you guys knew you had to build off of? And then 
How? <laughs> if you can recall, I know you're, you're, talking about you're already into season, season four, so yeah. if you can recall season three, since... Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, you do four. have writers from the... I mean, Jeff was, was on the first True. season of Parenthood uh, <laughs> when I was not, um, but we were... Friday Night Lights, we were wrapping up, and uh, so we were on one side of the office in a room, right. and these guys were on the other side of the office in the other room, and Cadence would go sort of back and forth. But your question is, what were, what were the cliffhangers at the end of season or three? Or what were kind of the big moments that you knew you wanted to hit in three. Well, Since you know, we don't want to talk about four yet because it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, Ray Romano's going to be on season four. That's what I'll say. And I've seen the first two cuts, and he's fucking amazing. He's really, really entertaining to watch. But at the end of three, season three ended with a wedding, um, you know, with Dax Shepard's character. And, um, and so we always knew we were driving to a wedding mm-hmm. at the end of the year. And it was very interesting in the room to think about story in that way. It's like, oh, you know what would be really cool if, if, if we took that story and we, you know, we held it an episode and then it actually happened at the wedding. <laughs> so that was the organizing principle of the end of the season was to um, wrap up story at that wedding. And honestly, I feel like we, <laughs> we did too much wrapping up. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the season ends and you sort of just say, shit, I hope, we, you know, I hope we come back next year. It feels like we just ended the show. Um, so we intentionally tried to, uh, to get there to this wedding at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but the interesting thing about that show is if you look at it, there's, you know, the main characters are all adults, and yet it's a show called Parenthood. So we constantly are sort of challenging ourselves, what's our parenting story this week? Because it's easy to get caught up in the romance that Lauren Graham is having with somebody, or, you know, Zeke's taking Viagra. I mean, those are funny stories that we, that we enjoy doing, but we just sort of, you know, this is Parenthood. We need to tell a story about kids. Um, and I have four kids, and a lot of the other writers in the room have kids, so we have material that we steal all the time. Um, and sometimes change the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> um, but that's essentially the process. And again, I, you know, looking back on the wedding that ended that season, it really did become almost a crutch. Talking about lazy writing, it's like, ah, we'll, we'll deal with it at the wedding. We'll deal with it at the wedding. It became this, this catch-all. Um, but that's that's how the season ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, take us inside the room for a minute. How do you? I mean, you guys have, and Sarah Watson was here and talked about it. And uh, you guys have sort of a notoriously short day. We do. <laughs> it's it's great. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I it's it's it's. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes my kids are like, "Do you ever do anything?" You know, because I'm waking up at ten thirty. Um, it's a short room, but look, it's a short room for two reasons. Number one, Kadem's. Um, is organized and he knows what he's doing and he's always been that way even on Friday Night Lights it was very organized and it was a change for me from the prior room that I was in honestly because in the prior room we would and I don't know how many of you here are familiar with this but um, you know We'd spend an hour ordering lunch, and then we'd spend an hour and a half talking about Us Magazine. Then you'd spend an hour talking about the week. You know, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of uh, of work work being done the entire time you're in the room. This room is the opposite of that. When we're in the room, we're working. Wow. Um, and if we're not working, then we're not in the room. So when we're, that's how we're able to keep the day short. Plus, we've been together a lot of us for a very long time. Um, the show's in its fourth season, so. You know, and it's a serialized family drama. It's not like we have to come up with these amazingly interesting, <laughs> cool, you know, murder plots each week. So I was, I'm not saying it's easy. Not, not but like I'm on just Friday saying, Night Live. I'm just saying I think we've gotten good at it. Is the answer? I mean, I hope we've gotten good at it. Um, and what is the? But, but yes, what is the, the days are short. <laughs> how how short? I guess how short is short? Um, who does this podcast go to? Hold up, dear hold up studio. Your we were there till midnight. Just um, they they're reasonable. 
the no, no, no. We, we, we tend to start around um, 11.30 or noon, and we're usually through by 4 or 4.30. Um, but we go... <laughs> it's weird. Can I, I mean, it's just for you? I'm used, used to that. <laughs> completely used to that now. And, um, and it's very efficient. The other thing that, that I think is smart that um, I actually learned this from Cadence, too, is at the beginning of the year, we spend two weeks, and we arc mm-hmm. stories and tent poles. So by the time that we start breaking that first episode... We call them movements. We know what's going to happen in the first, you know, four or five episodes. Then we get the air schedule, and NBC fucks it up for us, and we have to go back and reshuffle <laughs> everything. But we break in movements, so we know we kind of. We always like to know where we're trying to go, mm-hmm. um, and I think it really helps yeah. the process. Sure. Uh, and just to get a little more specific and nuts and boltsy for a second. Um, once you guys have arced those episodes, and I assume anyone who's not off on script is in the room helping to break episodes. Uh, what does that look like? You know, how built are the stories by the time you're breaking individual episodes? Uh, it's very general. I mean, it's sort of like this is the episode where um, Amber meets the blah, 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 mm-hmm. the, the new love interest. Sure. This is the episode where, you know, we find out that, you know, Zeke had a heart problem. It's, it's literally one card. With, with, you know, you know the event. Of we know the episode. event, yeah. and we don't break the story. We just know the event in a very generalized way, sometimes do too generalized. But a lot of times what happens is when you're talking globally like that, and this is just my personal pet peeve, um, you know, you can talk forever. You can spin and spin and spin because, well, what if we did this? So you, you sort of have to just every now and then take stock and sit back and go, here's what we're doing. So by the end of that first first couple of weeks, we'll have a board in the room that will have each episode for each character, just a thumbnail of what of what we uh, mm-hmm. what we want to do. And it changes all the time. You know, actor availability affects that a lot of times. We wanted to do a big arc with um, with Lauren Graham's ex-husband last year, and then, um, you know, the actor becomes unavailable, so you have to move. Mm-hmm. We got two episodes ordered very late last year. We had to go back and squeeze them in between our last two. So you have to constantly be nimble yeah. um, in that way. Oh, good. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get into how that is the same or different from, say, Friday Night Lights or some of the other stuff you're worked on in a minute. Uh, Josh, welcome back. Yay. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, can we catch up for a second? Sure. Uh, I think when, when last you were here, um, I, you were about to develop things or pitch things? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm here. Oh, we talked at the end of, like, staffing If season. we're not counting the, podca- the de- depressing podcast that, that counts. we did. Oh. <laughs> did you guys hear our, was it like our, our staffing I, yeah, season right. wrap-up? Oh, uh, was... we just bitched about how terrible the business was. Yeah, yeah that's an upper. For all of you who want to bring the business, go listen to that. And if you still want to do this, uh, I mean, you won't. So it doesn't matter. Don't listen to it. Um, uh, oh, but yeah. you had some things, because you have a deal at Fox, I right? have a deal at 20th. Yes. Okay. Let's uh, use the F word. You're right. <laughs> um, so you had some things uh, that you were he starting to I work know on. that they don't listen. I tell you right now, I've said some horrible things in the last year or two. They don't know. Uh, you had some stuff that you were starting to work on. Where are you with these ideas? Are you developing anything I, for sure right now? I am developing something. I, I, I went out with one pitch okay. that did not sell. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's the public's loss. And... Um, <laughs> And then I'm, uh, I pitched something last week that has sold to two, or I have offers from two networks, and I'm pitching a third network on 
Tuesday, so I don't nice. really want to say what it is right now because I don't right. know where it is or where sure. it's going to end up. I just hope it's not Fox. <laughs> they don't. They don't care. They don't listen. Okay? I'll tell you right now, they actually have offered to buy it. And I said to them in the room, oh, fuck. That's a good strategy. Then Kevin Riley looked me in the eye and said, I really didn't want to like this. And I said, that makes two of us. <laughs> that was, that's how I pitch to the network. Can you talk about the one that has sold? No, that's the one. That's the one that's sold. <laughs> Can you talk about that at all? No, no, because I don't know where it, I don't know where oh, it's at that's yet. Still yeah, it's still ongoing. Yeah, it's still ongoing, and I, I don't know. Um, it's a genre thing. It's mm-hmm. in an area that uh, I'm very familiar with. Uh, um, but my other thing, I tried to sell a, the Big Mars thing, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and we didn't sell. I had a Big Mars colony pitch. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Red Mars, mm. Green Mars, Blue Mars. I went out with with Galen Hurd, and I went out, and we didn't sell it. Mm. Yeah. It's a weird year. It's a very weird development year. Yeah, um, will you talk for a minute, and Jeff, you can probably speak to this as well, about why it is a weird year or the experience you guys are having. I, I'm Go not ahead. sure why it's a weird year, but I think it's, a, but it's this year is just, I don't know if, because last year NBC and ABC specifically bought so much stuff mm-hmm. because they were, the networks were in such bad places. They bought so much stuff, and that it also ended up costing Fox more than CBS because they're sort of in separate. Uh, they cost they cost themselves a lot of money last year. They bought a lot of things. You know, NBC for example, I think has eleven new shows on. They can't promote all stuff. So I think um, what's happen happening right now is that people just went, oh, uh, we don't want to spend this much money this year. And so August has been. Uh, I don't know what your experience has been. Certainly on the drama side, August has been in, in a, like a big iteration of of math slower than it was. I'm hoping after Labor Day that they wake up and realize they have a lot of money left and they need to spend it and then, because they literally have bought at a rate that's probably one quarter of the rate that they bought last year. last year. And I don't know if they all got together and decided to do this. I don't know exactly if it's just the economy. I, I don't know, but it's been a weird year and a lot of people who you would think would sell things such as myself uh, have not. It, has it affected pitching? Like when you go into a room to pitch, are you getting... Besides yeah. the pass on the project, but are you getting different, you know, yeah. feeling in the it's, room? It's, you know, in years past, if you were a writer who had a deal and, a, you know, had stuff on the, you know, uh, had some history, if you wanted to pitch networks, you would, you, they'd, your studio would call up and they'd say, here, you know, Josh or Jeff or you know, someone has an idea, they want to come in and pitch, they go, okay, great. It might not be completely our thing, but, uh, yeah, we'll hear it. This year they're literally saying, no, nope, no thanks, we don't even want to hear it. And that has never happened before for a lot of stu- the studios. I think are they don't even know what to do. Yeah. So I think it's, I fear what's going to happen is that it's going to change the ideas at the at, at like it's going to it's going to make it more like I'm, I fear we're going to end up like the movie business, hmm. at least this year where only these really big stupid ideas <laughs> are going to sell like mine will hopefully. Right. <laughs> Joe. Oh, I, I Jeff? Prom- I, Jeff promised he wasn't going to be snarky tonight, and I'm I not. did well, not make gonna... a promise at all. We're going to stay positive. Uh, Jeff? I, I don't have a lot to report from the development <laughs> trenches because I've been staying out of them. Yeah. Um, my, I mean, I have um, – well, let me rewind the tape a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, um, uh, when I finished up on Desperate Housewives, um, I had a couple of meetings about staffing, but I didn't find anything I was really excited about doing. And I had husbands – 
uh, rapidly approaching. I don't know if you guys are, are you guys aware familiar of this, with husbands. Um, oh, tap it applause. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, tell them briefly what I husbands will tell you is. what husbands is. Um, husbands is uh, the second series of husbands, which uh, hit the internets uh, two weeks ago, uh, is a web series created by Jane Espenson and Brad Bell. And uh, we did a very low budget uh, version of this series in 11 two minute episodes last fall, and it got a rapturous reception. Um, I mean, it's the only web series ever reviewed in the New Yorker, in the print edition. Yeah. In a review with Parenthood. What could have made me happier? Um, and so uh, Jane did a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for a season two, uh, which vastly surpassed its goals. And so we, you know, geared up to do production this summer. And so most of my summer was taken up uh, shooting season two, uh, which, as I said, premiered last week, is doing extraordinary, got reviewed in time. I mean, I, these things don't and happen. And it's great, to too. It's, thank you. It's beautiful, um, beautifully shot. Thank and, you. Uh, put um, together. Yeah, I should say, I don't think I said this. I'm the director. I'm a director <laughs> and executive producer of the show. I'm not a writer. Um, and uh, we premiered the first episode last week. Uh, original episodes every other Wednesday. So the second episode comes out on Wednesday, featuring my friend John Cockcrier in a fantastic yeah. guest star part. <laughs> um, and it's been great. And so, honestly, I decided to make that my summer project. Um, and we had a lot of fun doing it, and it's getting a great reception. And so that's what I've been doing. Uh, alongside that, I have a pilot I decided to write on spec because I thought that yeah. the pitch would cause people to run screaming in the opposite <laughs> direction. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I don't want to pitch it to you, but it, no, it, is, it is a concept whose inherent spiciness, I think, would... <laughs> just give networks pause. And I'm not even sure it's a network show. And to be honest, you know, I'm not. I'm going to name drop here, but you know that I know this woman. Do it. <laughs> I was talking with Winnie Holtzman about this oh. idea. Oh. My so-called life creator, Winnie Creator Holtzman. of my so-called life wrote the book for Wicked. Um, and uh, uh, I was talking to her about this show when I was first incubating it. I was like, I don't know why I feel the need to write this thing. Mm -hmm. And she said that, yeah, I don't know if this was original with her, if a writing teacher said this to her, but she said, we write to solve a problem. And I thought that was really interesting. Like the pull that I felt toward writing this thing was about working out the math of this story and these relationships and this predicament in my head. And I felt like I needed to write my way through this rather than go out and do the big flashy sell. Mm -hmm. And then, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe you guys have had experiences as writers where you do this. You need to do it in order to understand what it is. And so alongside husbands, I've been writing this thing. And then I also, I have a pitch that I may take out. But I've been holding back for a lot of the reasons that Josh describes. It seems a very peculiar development year. Um, I agree with you that particularly NBC and ABC made the market a little bit warped and strange last year, and now they've gone in the opposite direction in that there's a real gun shyness. And so I am being very uh, careful. Sure. Uh, uh, let, me, let me just briefly ask you a quick sure. question, then we'll come back to these guys. Um, in writing this new spec that you're doing, uh, are you still crying every yeah. day? Oh, yeah, it's, really, it's much, much harder. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys, I mentioned tears in a previous podcast because I find writing really hard, and I'm really hard on myself, and, uh, and particularly when I am not uh, uh, performing to the level of my satisfaction, it's difficult for me to stay engaged with something. And this has been particularly difficult because I'm doing it all by myself. You know, as someone, I've said in the past that the thing I love most about what I do is collaboration. And I have no collaborators on this. This is me in my sad, lonely room um, writing by myself. And so I don't even have the benefit. I wrote with a partner for half of my career. I like when executives are good the give and take of collaboration with executives and helping me shape concepts. I don't have that this time. And so it's been 
even more challenging than it usually is. I relish it. I'm glad I'm doing it this way, but uh, it's hard. Sure. Well, good luck. Thanks. Yeah, we look forward Thank to you. it. Um, oh, you... can I say one other thing I'm doing? I guess. Shoot. No, no, no. Go no, ahead. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The other thing I did this summer is that a good friend of mine, Bob Cushell, who I know you've yeah. had on a previous panel, uh, sold a series to the BBC called Way to Go. Right. I don't know if he told you about he, this. It was just happening yeah, when he was here very a year exciting. ago. Yeah, he, a thing he wrote on spec, a very funny, dark, half-hour comedy <clears throat> about three slacker friends who start a home euthanasia business. <laughs> um, <Right>. uh, <laughs> it's very funny and very dark, and uh, the BBC bought it, ordered six episodes, and I am writing and directing the season finale. Wow, and so awesome. I'm going to be, I finished the script and I'm going to be going to London in six weeks to direct it. Amazing. Which I am beyond thrilled. Well, well, bury the lead. Yeah. I know, I know, that sounds pretty that's cool. Fantastic. But so that, so honestly, you know, directing has been taking up more of my time, which is groovy, right. and it's not writing, which is groovy. <laughs> um, but uh, so I'm trying to juggle everything. I, th- that's awesome. Yeah, it's really great. Um, this sort of phrases, uh, are you guys, you know, we've heard from Josh and Jeff in the past about this. Are David and, and Lauren, are you guys writers who like to write? Or is it a misery for you? Um, uh, yeah, when I know what I'm writing about, I like writing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a total right. procrastinator. How? Yeah. I mean, uh, completely. Um, but yeah, I, I like to write. I do like to write. Once I know what I'm writing and I get into it and I get into a groove, I really like writing. But I'm a total crier, too. I cry all the time. <laughs> yeah. I cry publicly in my room at all times. I cry... <laughs> In my office, I cry and bring writers in to talk about the... Wi- I cry when I talk about crying sometimes. Oh, then stop, I, by the way, stop. It's true. Um, what, what brings on the tears in the room? This is so fascinating to me, and we, we talked about this a little well, bit earlier. Well, I feel like I have a really good sense of sense memory, and I think that like when I finally like figured out who I was as a writer, and by then I had already sold a lot of stuff, but nothing was really nothing really had got to the next level. I started writing about myself and, you know, taking some creative liberties, taking not some creative liberties, and being really afraid to write about the things that were really humiliating because I've had a lot of humiliations that I was embarrassed to talk about. So I started writing about it, and through the course of that, you know, uh, I sort of found a sense memory where I could really go back to those places and times and really feel it. And so sometimes I'll be pitching something in the room and, like, uh, and I'll start crying as if I am the character and can you, I'll just can, get teared up. Can or you give like, us an example? Do you remember a time well, you like, trying to make it, her cry it, right it, now? In the, in the first season, well, I, I would say my, in my show, I, the mother-daughter relationship is probably the, the, the relationship I love most. And there's this moment where basically I, I took the, the, the five phases of grief, and that was the arc for the mother of the first season. That She wrote this letter. She thought her daughter really tried to kill herself, and then she's going through all of those phases. And by the time she gets to acceptance, she's giving her daughter this thing, this dress to wear that she never actually got to wear that was meaningful, that was her mother's dress, that she thought her mother loved more than her. And so when she gives the dress to her daughter, and it's this really powerful moment where she's seeing her daughter in this dress and how beautiful her kid is, and she's come to the realization that she really loves her kid she really fucked up and she says to her you know uh you know god i can't remember what i what i wrote but anyway she says basically like you're not me you're better and i when i was in my room and i was just i came and i pitched it and 
And then I cried when I wrote it, and I directed that episode, and I cried when I was directing it. And then Nikki Deloach, who plays Lacey, is so fucking good. And she's, she's crying as she's saying it. I'm crying at the monitor. We're all crying. And then I had to do interviews after the finale, and I'm on with reporters, and I'm talking about it because all I want is my mom to validate me in life. And she doesn't watch my show. And so I write this beautiful love letter to my mother and like and I'm crying on the and the reporters are just dying and I'm crying and Nikki's crying and I cry all the time and like and I I got this really sort of mean email from my dad this last week and so I cried that morning when I read the email basically my dad said he he only watches my show he would never watch my show if I didn't write it which made me cry because who I mean it's terrible so um and then he took it back and he said oh I don't watch MTV so you know (laughs) I was like it's not understandable so I came into the room and then I started talking about that email and then I started doing this and like I have a whole new team of writers here so they don't know that I'm like an unabashed crier so I'm trying like oh my god I'm crying and now I'm crying now I'm really crying and as I'm talking about it and so you know you just have to sometimes cry it out and but I feel like it makes the writing good and it makes for the moments good I'm an unabashed crier I cry all the time people say there's no crying in show business it, there's a lot of crying in my office. I don't know who says that yeah um, it, what's interesting though is you know your show we, we touched on this a little bit uh, outside but your show is ostensibly a half hour comedy yes uh, but there's some real moments of emotional honesty there that could be played for laughs but aren't Yes. Um, and likewise, Parenthood, uh, and Friday Night Lights for that matter, uh, is an hour-long drama, but there are some moments that are played for laughs. Um, and I want to talk to both of you guys about balancing those things. Uh, how do you choose, whether it's you know storyline or just a moment in the show, uh, and, and either of you who wants to jump in? Well, I'll start crying, and then I'll know that that has to be played in an earnest moment. Um, I think there there are choices that you make when you're... It's like, it is a comedy, so I've got to have enough of both. And there are sometimes, there are storylines that I, I start to feel like when we break, we break arcs too at the beginning of the year. And when, after we break the arcs, I look at the storylines and I'm like, okay, guys, I know we've talked about a lot of deep, dark shit, but this is a comedy. So we're going to mine the comedy because I feel like you can't tell anything that's really funny unless it's something sort of tragic. So um, it seems like we're, we're writing a really awful teen drama and then we kind of go back and find the, and mine the comedy in it and there will be times in, in an episode where we're hit we're getting to something that's really media and what is it about and even though my show is on MTV that people liken to Jersey Shore and a lot of like maybe I like Jersey Shore but um, a lot of like you know not such great content um, I feel like for that reason I we have to do better our show has to be better than other shows and has to be smarter and it has to be stronger in the storytelling for that reason that we are on MTV. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there will just be a give and a take of like, okay, this feels like a really light episode, but what are we saying here? And like, what's that human moment of... Of, of earnestness and sometimes it feels like oh there's too much of it and so we pull it back and we, we mine it for comedy or sometimes we feel like there's you know we just need to mine a real moment in this like of reflection that feels real um, because I feel like that's the I mean 
my show sort of straddles like it's a it's a grounded you know I would say that like it's an authentic teen experience and yet we have these heightened moments of comedy that I would say like I always liken it to like Long Duck Dong in like <laughs> Sixteen Candles like he's crazy and heightened but it works in the context of the grounded story that's sort of happening around him right sure. so yeah. that's kind of how we we play with the comedy and the drama that makes sense so it is like an evolving process it totally and like this season like i think i told more intricate complicated stories this season um and i mean people might disagree but i i think they were harder to talk i mean we talked about faith and race mm-hmm. and um revisiting your trying to escape your past and like dealing with like uncovering who your parents were um my favorite episode which you know it comes up this week is sort of like we're gonna get to know why the mother wrote the letter and it's like i cried when i wrote that one too because i just you know i wanted to like where we we made her sort of the villain at the end of last season and this season i i got i wanted to redeem her Mm -hmm. i really wanted to redeem this person who became a mother at 17 and to say something about that. And it's been an interesting journey, too, in redeeming yeah. her because it is occasionally played for laughs and it is occasionally oh, yeah. played for drama. But it's been throughout the season, too. Totally. Cool. Because, you know, she's a real person who yeah. can be immature. And that's what's fun about her. I mean, she wanted to give her daughter a boob job, you know. And there are those moms who are like, let's get them fixed, you know. Like, <laughs> nature's not going to pack them for you. So, you know. We can buy them, you know? And I think that that's something that's really interesting if you have a mother like that, and there are mothers like that, and I have friends who have mothers like that, or, you know, it's sort of like your nose really, your face hasn't grown into your nose, let's fix it, you know? Instead of just kind of like, I love you, and this is what's great about you. And that's her journey as a mother is sort of like embracing who her daughter is. That's great, and it's working. Uh, David, tell us about walking that line uh, in the, some of the shows you've comedy? worked on. Yeah, comedy and drama. Uh, I'm thinking specifically this, this question jumped into my head when I was watching the road trip episode of Parenthood from this season. Right. Uh, where, you know, there are these scenes with Adam and Hattie in the car, and, you know, this could have been a very heavy, dramatic moment. You know, it's a meaningful thing that I think a lot of parents go through as their kids get older where... She's not communicating or she's not enjoying this moment with her dad. And they were also really funny. Right. Well, um, I've been in that scene um, in the car with my <laughs> kid. Who, yeah. Who just, you know, and so I think a lot of it comes from, comes from real life in a lot of cases. For me, the comedy a lot of times comes from either the characters or the actors. I mean, you know, on Friday Night Lights, you say, let's do a buddy story. Immediately, you know, it's going to be funny. You know, um, sometimes it's unintentionally funny with some of the actors, but for the most part, you, you, you know, you're getting, you find who the people are who can, Monica Potter, who plays um, the mom on Parenthood, is one of the most brilliant fucking comic actresses. Her timing is incredible. And on both Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, it's very free. There's a lot of improv that goes on. Um, and these actors have found these characters and found these moments and they just so you know you see that and you go oh my god monica's hilarious we should do a story where dot 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 you know or or with buddy that was always the case even craig t nelson who plays the dad on parenthood you know he's he's an irascible old dude but i just i think he's funny um and i think the stories that that are comedies with him work well so having said that 
especially on parenthood, especially <laughs> lately, we, we've been getting into some heavier storylines. We'll take a moment in the room and go, all right, everybody, you know, we don't want people shooting themselves in the head at the end of Act Two. So what can we do to lighten up and do it? We call him a fun runner. Let's do a fun runner. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember Liz Heldon's one year in Friday Night Lights said, let's do an episode where Tammy gets a haircut and Coach doesn't like it. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You could probably get five hilarious Absolutely. beats out of that dumb little story, you know. <laughs> so, but a lot of times it's just you, you it, on, on our show, those shows that I've been on, we're consciously looking for it. And then when you sit down and write, you know, it's, it's sort of up to the writer. I think you're always trying, I'm always trying to find what's funny in the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if it's an emotional scene, I always just have this instinct to try and take the curse off it at the end by having somebody be a smart ass or having something happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the, you know, somebody like Lauren Graham, who's a great physical actress. She can play, you know, it's like give Lauren a, give Lauren a sheet and say go. You know, she can make something funny out of it. So um, we tend to default to the characters and, and, and the actors on that. Um, I just want to follow up for a second with uh, both of you guys, Lauren and David. As Josh and Jeff were talking about this development season, you guys were nodding. Uh, are you developing as you're working on your shows as well? Um, yeah, I have something. Uh, I mean, it's with MTV. Um, that, <laughs> oh, which, I, by the way, I say with all due respect, I love working at a network where I, it's they're so good to me and they let me create. I mean, like, I really my show is me and I direct my show and I drive people crazy because I micromanage the shit out of my show and in good for good or bad um but they've been so good to me and it's been sort of like a family affair to be part of something that's so new has been awesome but and and part of the reason why I like continuing to work there is because the business has gotten you know um tv has been good to me I have only been working in tv for seven years so I've you know I feel really lucky I've I don't have the pedigree of these three awesome gentlemen up here, um, but uh, not even not even close. Um, I've had a really interesting experience. I went from like selling pilots, being a staff writer, and then being a showrunner. I mean, like, doesn't really happen, and it wouldn't happen at any place else except MTV. So, um, but what I hear from you know my friends who are sort of pounding the pavement in development is like. Like you said, like if people, if they don't kind of like buy the great idea or the out of the box idea, television will become movies. And right now, I mean, I had a, I brought a, a feature director onto my show this year who's a dear friend who's been trying to get into television for seven years. Mm. He couldn't get arrested. He's directed a bunch of movies, couldn't get a TV job you know, to save his life, probably because we writers are like, oh, yeah, you think you're the boss, we're the boss. Um, But, uh, which is true. Um, But he did such a great job, and now he's getting hired all the time by MTV. But he looked at me, and he was like, why the fuck would you want to go back into features to get kicked in the face? And it's true. And at the same time, it's like, why do I want to go over to a network and go through? I've developed at other networks and it is a process. And sometimes it's a good process. And sometimes it's like story by committee and you lose the vision. And there's lots of good, smart people giving you notes, but they 
they're reading 80 scripts and then taking 10 minutes to talk to each other before they get on the phone with you. You have seven visions coming at you and you have to sort of figure out, wait, what do you want? And then you go back and you suddenly you've lost your vision. And so suddenly the thing that was once really cool and might've been edgy and maybe still would have been a network show or just even interesting has lost its bite or it's what's interesting about it or why you wanted to write it in the first place because you're trying to make everything into what they need this year. Well, we had that last year, and that didn't work, and we couldn't find an actress, so, yeah, we need you to change the storyline and make it a dude, or whatever that is. And it, it, it really becomes sort of like the pieces. So there's no free writing. There's no... It's interesting the shows that actually get on the air that are kind of amazing that we all watch, like Mad Men and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Breaking Bad, I, basically AMC shows. And... Um, <laughs> And, and really, you know, those shows are made because that network's like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make really interesting shows. Um, and what was that other show that was like about the think tank? Um, I can't remember what it was Rubicon. called. Rubicon. So good and so smart, but so hard to understand what was going on. And <laughs> I, but it was really good and it was really smart. And I, I just keep thinking about like, we're in this place where e- recently I had a meeting with um, to be, I won't say what feature studio it was. A friend of mine is a big exec and she, she, we, she took me to dinner and she said, I want to buy a movie for you, from you. I want you to write it and direct it. And I was like, awesome. And she was like, I know we've talked about a couple of your ideas. And I was like, cool. And then we sat down and she's like, so can you write this for Mila Kunis? And I was like, no. <laughs> you know? And it was like, well, can you write this for Emma Stone? I was like, she's not, I mean, is she even going to be available? Like, or, you know, who's the new person? And so you can't write the perfect character anymore. It's like, we need to know, let's go pitch it to them, get them attached. And then suddenly your idea becomes hijacked. It's not what it was. And it's probably never going to see the light of day because all of those variables totally change in the process of writing it. So, I feel like for me, I've gotten, gotten to this place where I'm like, I just only write on spec. I will not write anymore. I, won't, I just don't want to pitch anymore. I don't want to go in there and have something bastardized. I want to write on spec. This is going to sound crazy. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why are you going to write on spec? Um, because at the end of the day, it's like I'm tired of watching things that could have been great. And not to say, like, I love a good executive. A great executive is your best friend. And my executives at the network are, like, my partners. They are, like, my producing partners. They help me, like, you know, they just support my vision at all times. And even if we debate an episode like this season, the the church camp episode, um, which was super risque and people called me disgusting on the Internet for making fun of Christ. But... um, But I would contend that we also made, we pointed out what was good about having the courage of your convictions and being a kid who had faith. So it was one of those things where they were really scared of it. They didn't want to do it. And then we did it and people loved it, you know, Uh, except for those people who call me disgusting. Um, But I agree with them. The business is totally changing and people are getting scared. And I feel like we need to be, writers need to run the network. I'm just going to say that. I feel like if these two guys actually ran the networks, maybe we would have really good TV on the network. Oh, dear God. Um, <laughs> you have not seen my pilots. <laughs> uh, David, what's been yeah, your Yeah, I, I agree. It has been a weird year. I had a, uh, an executive tell me on Friday, no world building. No world building oh, shows. Oh, yeah, but there's like, there's everybody, they fucking hate world building because people are tired of, tired of building worlds. So there's an example, there's an example of somebody who's like, okay, Okay. 
You're right. Um, Everyone hates Once no, Upon a Time. I, yeah. I had them say that to me on Thursday. Yeah. I'm not kidding. It's it's, it's odd. It's, it's just. But you know what? By the way, my experience has been every season. There's always like the buzz. You know, two years ago it was Blue Skies. Where's your Blue Sky show? You know, this year it's no. There's so there's always there's always some sort of catchphrase, and the process is totally frustrating and soul crushing at times. Having said that, I'm under a deal and I'm doing it right now. I mean, I'm right in the middle of that whole process. Is it changing the way you pitch though, or are you are you pitching things that you want to be pitching? Well, here's what I've done in my case. I feel like I'm, I'm being the good boy, and I'm doing one that they want me to do, and I'm doing one that I want to do. I mean, that's not totally true, Guess what's but um, I, used to, well, I used to be a lawyer, and so the, the studio forever said, when are you going to write a law show? And I just, I've been avoiding it and resisting it, and finally I gave in. I saw there's this British series called Injustice that was amazing um, that Anthony Horowitz wrote. So NBC has now got it, and I'm going to be doing that. with. Um, <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> that one's with Dick Wolf. The other one I'm doing is with um, is with Jimmy Fallon, so you can't imagine two more opposite personalities or people involved. But it, that process of, of going through and in, in the in the Jimmy Fallon case, I'm supervising, which is my first time. It's new for me, um, and and I love it. That's one of my favorite things to do. And I want to mention before I leave here, the other thing that happened to me. Um, Adam, are you here? Uh, there he is. There's a program that Adam is, Adam Carp, ladies and gentlemen, he's my, he's my assistant. He's a good guy and a great writer. Um, there's a program through the Humanitas Foundation, Foundation that, that awards the Humanitas Prize called New Voices, and it's for new voices, unrecognized writers. And essentially what happens is, you know, various board members will, board members will partner up with new writers and go in and pitch an idea, and um, they've already made deals with the various networks for, uh, to write it for scale. And so we went in and did this as part of the New Voices this year, and Adam sold it in the room. So, you know, there are ways out there in for people, uh, you know, and that's just one example. By, I mean, obviously, you know, we could talk forever about the, um, what are they called, the fellowships, those, mm-hmm. but, but anyway. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that happened because it was a really good idea. So, and, and it's very much a situation where I think, Adam, if we had gone in there, you know, I, the reaction we got was either, either, either this is the greatest idea in the world or it's totally bananas. So he actually said the word bananas. So um, <laughs> I, I, I hope it's, I hope it's, it's not bananas. Um, I want to get into uh, how you guys came into the business, but before we do, and I apologize, this is a little different than what we talked Sorry, about. Okay. Um, so I'll throw this to either of you, uh, Jeff or Josh. Right. Um, talk to me about some of the influences you guys had as kids, things that were on, or young adults for that matter, things that were on television or things that you read that made you want to write. And hopefully they'll be underrated or overlooked things <laughs> on theme. Oh, oh my God. Uh, but, you know. Oh, geez. They, they, you know, I was, God, what, what just floated into my head were three things that aren't TV. That's all right. What are they? Tom Lehrer, Charles Schultz, Woody Allen. All right. I mean, there are no... For me, uh, the songs of Tom Lehrer were a massive, massive... It made massive impact on me. Hold on. Okay. Are you guys familiar with him? With I Tom love Lehrer? that there's no. a whole room full of they're people not. here who's never heard Tom Lehrer it's, before. They're very young. Okay, that's fine. So was I. Tom Lehrer is the 50s, okay? That was my dad's records that I was pulling <laughs> off the shelf, okay? 
Tom Lehrer was a musical satirist who uh, came out of Harvard and uh, did two self-released records in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, which for a time were the most profitable records of all time because he made them on his own dime and they sold thousands upon thousands of copies. And the one that you might have heard of, which was on like Dr. Demento when I was growing up, was Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. Mm-hmm. That was And the Masochism Tango. And he's become, actually, maybe the thing he's best known for was uh, setting the periodic table to music. Um, which you may have heard. But brilliant, trenchant, incredibly well-written musical satire. Um, unbelievably funny. And his stage, and he did record a live album, and his stage patter is also incredibly funny. He teaches math at UC Santa Cruz. That's what he's doing. He made these three unbelievable records and then retired. And he teaches math at UC Santa Cruz. Oh, wow. Unbelievably great stuff, and I really urge you to seek it out because it's all, it's all in print. There was a Rhino box set a couple of years ago. It's great, funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Peanuts. There was no other... I mean, I would read those, uh, those Holt Reinhardt Peanuts uh-huh. paperbacks <laughs> obsessively. And I think Charles Schultz is like a Picasso. I don't think he gets enough credit for define, his defining role in American popular culture of the late 20th century. Security blanket. I mean, just think of so many things that he contributed to our culture, and I would read those things obsessively. Beautifully designed characters, great storylines that would span weeks and sometimes months. Unbelievably good. And then Woody Allen. I mean, the, uh, it's particularly, it started for me with the uh, stand-up comic record, mm-hmm. which is an amazing, the moose is furious, right? <laughs> um, and those records are endlessly repeatable. And in the Desperate Housewives room, if you said the word moose, any number of us would start doing the entire bit. <laughs> I mean, it was a huge influence. And of course, the films are incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, Love and Death and Manhattan are in my personal pantheon. Annie Hall, I think I saw every year. Um, from the age of 13 on. Um, uh, so those were the three. But TV, I mean, I grew up on the TV that a lot of kids of the 70s did, which was like Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch. And, you know, uh, uh, I was going to say, you know, we'll talk, let me to segue into neglected shows. So, uh, a couple of shows from that era that made a really big impact on me were Soap, which I think is an amazing yeah. show that I don't think gets enough credit for how culture, you know, culturally shocking it was. It's, it's one that comes up a lot among writers, yeah. too. Yeah, and uh, it's wonderful that that's out on DVD because you yeah. go back, and Susan Harris is an absolutely brilliant writer. And, uh, and, I mean, you know, not only did she create that show, she created The And Golden Billy Girls. Crystal was gay. Yes. Well, that, I mean, so groundbreaking in so many ways. And, and I remember it was, a, you know, when so there were stations, just like New Normal is getting banned by a station in Utah, there were stations that wouldn't carry soap because it was so racy. So I loved that show. I loved Maud. That was another show that I liked, which I thought was incredible from that Norman Lear pantheon. And, she, you know, think of trying to do that show today, by the way. Oh, it's about a 60-year-old unattractive woman um, who's a loud mouth and uh, she has a hot daughter, but her husband is a balding kind of lump. I mean, you'd never sell that show, but she was re- B. Arthur, nobody funnier. That was a great show. And, you know, the other show from that era that made a big impact on me was Lou Grant. Which I think yeah. is another show that really, if you look for the genesis of the non-procedural show, there were procedural elements to that show, but a show that was about the relationships between the characters as much as it was about ferreting out the story, mm-hmm. it's incredibly influential. And the writers that came out of that went on to work on L.A. Law, which is mm-hmm. another underrated show, and NYPD Blue and all the Botchko shows. A lot of those people's mm-hmm. prehistory mm-hmm. was on Lou Grant. And I think... Isn't that, is that still the only show that's a drama spinoff out of a comedy? 
May, maybe so. you guys may think you think of another one, but uh, those were a lot of shows that made a big impact on me that uh, uh, I still kind of hold up as touchstones. That was, that was impressive. I can't follow that. I, don't know. I feel like he and I grew up in the same house, so I don't, you know, I don't know. We're, you know, it's hard to say about things that are underrated because I don't, I don't really, in terms of the things that I remember. I mean, I remember all those Norman Lear shows, you know, like, but I don't think, I mean, All in the Family, which I yes, used to watch great. all the time when I was a kid, probably earlier than I should have. Not an underrated show, but a show that made right. a huge. But I, I mean, think it's also a show that like a lot of people young people now hear a lot about but maybe have not seen or re- don't realize why it is important. Were, I mean, I think shows that really were trying to say something back then. I mean, I I was the kind of kid who my best friend Grant Photo and I, and we couldn't have been more different. I was a Jew and yeah, he was from Texas and, um, and a Cowboys fan. Uh, <laughs> And we were living in Boulder, Colorado, and I, my, I would go over to his house after school, and we would watch MASH reruns mm. every day. They were syndicated they were on all the time, and I would wear a bathrobe and make martinis out of lemonade <laughs> with olives. Oh, my God, that's And great. sit at his, in the basement of his house. Uh, I think this is why I started masturbating late in life. I spent all that kind of after-school masturbation time with watching TV and pretending I was Alan Alda. Uh, you know, um, I know those two aren't mutually exclusive, but somehow it worked out that way. Um, but I, I took those shows very seriously. I mean, in you know, my house it was like my dad, God bless him. If if Faulty Towers was on, you sat down and you watched Faulty Towers. I mean, like yeah, that was what we did. You know, but I, you know. Mash, Mash was like a seminal, you know, show for me. I mean, and I, you know, I was too young probably when yeah. it started, but by the time it was syndicated and by the time it ended, I'd seen every single episode multiple times, and that was like I lived, you know, that and, you know, influences. I mean, the weirdest, that's not weird. I've written people who know me know this about me, but I've written almost every single thing I've ever written while listening to Bruce Springsteen. Mm. Okay. It is the soundtrack to my entire creative life. <laughs> I've seen him 25 times. What is it about know. him for you? Huh? What is it about him for you? Um, well, I think he's one of the best storytellers alive. I mean, I think, and whether you like that kind of music or don't like that kind of music, or you think you don't like it, if you don't, if you think you don't like it, you haven't listened to it. Um, was he's a guy who who took the first, you know, who you know, kind of. Um, started writing a lot in the first person and taking and, and taking and I, I've always been impressed with his ability to both write popular uh, music, like basically network music, with a cable sensibility. <laughs> and I think you know, which well is, done. You know, I mean, I think that's. I mean, Born in the USA is the most fucking fuck you network uh, <laughs> album where it was like, and people are still mis- don't understand yeah. that album. Everyone still thinks Born in the, that song Born in the USA is this big patriotic song that's about, you know, this Vietnam veteran who couldn't get a job and his, you know, his brother's blown up in Vietnam. And, and, you know, until you've heard that song done on a slide guitar live, you don't understand the song. And, like, that's, you know, why yeah. Reagan kept putting it on. It was like, you <laughs> dumb fuck. Um, but, I mean, but the idea that, that, that this guy wrote this album and he wrote this sort of anthem Anthemic uh, album was just, and people went and bought it, and you know, some people understood it, some people didn't. But I just, it's incredibly subversive. It's one of the most subversive albums probably in the last, I mean, you know, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the album that made all the cool kids go, I fucking hate Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> which I think is really interesting, you yeah. know. And he's spent a lot of the time since then kind of bouncing back and forth and trying to balance that. And I find that to be my problem, you know, in, in TV. 
you know, everyone wants to write like the cool cable kids, but everyone wants to get paid like the network people. <laughs> and, you know, I, I always say it's like, it, you know, I can afford to succeed in cable, but I can only afford to fail on network TV. <laughs> and so I have these deals, you know, we have these network studio deals, and you have to feed that beast. And it used to be that network TV was, I mean, you know, all in the family, MASH, these shows, they wrote about something. I mean, she's writing about something, he's writing about something. But you can't afford to be on a cable show? I don't understand that. I can't afford to be on a cable show. I can only afford to be on a cable show that's a fucking hit. I can afford to be on Breaking Bad. I can afford to be Vince Gilligan sitting here in my fucking tuxedo. But I, I can't. You know, I mean, I, the first network TV job I was offered was to be on X-Files. It was the first time I'd gone out for a job because I'd been writing features. And then I went to, uh, I was like, and I'd written some pilots. And I thought, oh, I should be on a show. I should try that. I'm writing pilots. And I said, I love X-Files. I want to go be on X-Files. And, but I'd been doing really well in the feature world for probably seven or eight, nine years, but it sucked. And uh, so I said, can you, you know, get me a meeting on X-Files? So I, I basically had to go to UT and go, okay, you're my TV agent now. Uh, let's go. Let's, can I get a meeting on X-Files? They got me a meeting on X-Files, and I got an offer. And uh, I couldn't afford to take it. I literally couldn't mm. afford to take it because I had just bought a house on my feature career money. <laughs> you know, like this big house in Hancock Park. Oh, poor Josh. And um, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what you should be thinking. By the way, I'm a fucking asshole. Um, but I had made a promise to myself that I would never let like my standard of living get to a place where I couldn't, where it would fuck me up creatively. And I, I literally said, "Yes, I can't afford to take this job." <laughs> Lauren has yeah. this look. She has this look. She's gonna cry. Are you gonna cry? We did it, you guys. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I no. But I defend listen, me. Defend I'm me. To try, I'm gonna come at guy who was on Will. Only the guy. Who was on Willie Grace for ten years right. can defend me. I just want yeah. you to know that's the... he doesn't ever have to work again. Which one of you millionaires? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me say this. Yes. He said, hiding his Rolex. Um, uh, <laughs> I feel really sorry for you guys. Um, <laughs> let me come at it a slightly different way. <laughs> right. when, but when, briefly, then we okay. want to get no, back. No, no, real, real, oh, super quick. When you grew up on the kind of TV we grew up on, like the All in the Families of the World or NYPD Blue, those incredibly bracing, progressive, interesting shows that were about something but rippingly funny that captured the imagination of the culture, well, that's what you strive for. You don't strive for, like, hitting the middle or the lowest common denominator. Those, that's the standard you hold yourself mm-hmm. to. And so, as, and so as a result, when you go in and you hear some of these notes like, you know, like uh, David and Lauren have talked about from the networks where it's like, give us the thing just like last Last year's thing, only turn it five degrees different so we can say it's different. Um, it's so disappointing. And yet it, that's our job is to tilt at those windmills. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, we need to raise the standard of what networks can do. The problem is, is that we're constantly bumping up against these failures of imagination. And it's so... Because you have insane. golden handcuffs. Yeah, well... Nah. I thought he was going to defend true. me, but I didn't hear anything. I was like waiting. Bring it home, motherfucker. Like, help me. So here's my Here's, okay, so here's, the, so here's my point, I guess. She and this one right here look at me like I am a douchebag. <laughs> they're, well, they're not listening. No, I just okay. want to swim in your pool. <laughs> if you knew how... Oh, never mind. <laughs> I was trying to elevate the discourse. I know, <laughs> I know. That, I know, that I know, is I a know. good point, though. It's I, a good point. I, I, it's well taken. Um, 
Let's go back okay, to influences for a moment. No. David, tell us about the stuff you uh, watched or read or put into your eyes or well, ears a lot of growing it was, up. I mean, a lot of it was mm-hmm. very similar, same or similar. Um, I loved I loved All in the Family. Um, I probably learned everything I know about structure from Gilligan's Island, sure. which wow. I watched religiously at 4.30 on <laughs> Channel 11 in Dallas, Texas, home Man. of the Cowboys. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> the world champion Dallas Cowboys. Um, What's the last time uh, they won a playoff game? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but, but honestly, as I got older, I do remember in college, every Thursday night, everything would stop, and we would go down to the commons room, and we would watch Cheers, Hill Street Blues. Those were, those were huge. And then, of course, Seinfeld in the 90s. I, that, Seinfeld was the first time I remember my dad saying to me, have you seen this show, The Seinfeld? <laughs> I was like, yeah, Dad, it's pretty fucking great. And to this day, Larry David's my, you know, one of my heroes. I'll, I can watch Curb any day mm. of the week. I just I love that smart comic sensibility. So those were those were latter influences, and then um, just Aaron Sorkin. I mean, West Wing was my sure. all-time favorite show. It's actually the spec I wrote that got me my first job. Oh, really? So because I loved that show so much, so uh, you know, uh, and sports line. Let's be sure, of course. And, and you love Newsroom, right? I actually have been watching Newsroom. It's, it doesn't end tonight. I think the finale yeah. is yeah. tonight. So yeah. uh, I have been watching it. You know, heavy-handedness at points aside, I just, you know, I, I like it. There's I a lot of good it. stuff in it. it. I yeah. think it's great. Um, yeah. Aaron Sorkin is for... the Bruce Springsteen of TV writers. Yeah. <laughs> is or was? <laughs> depends what you think of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> But um, just one last, yeah. one last thing to say, you know, I loved what you were just saying about fresh and the, the, those shows inspiring us. And yes, I feel like it's exactly what we aim for. And then every now and then I feel like, I mean, it's not usually me or anybody I know, but somebody brings, the, I mean, Modern Family, yeah. when that show yeah. came on, I was like, my God, immediately, I mean, immediately, the moment he held up the baby, you know, in the line, I was just like, this is fucking funny. Yeah. And, you know, to Steve's credit, he, I think, for the most part, has sustained that. So I thought that was a really uh, well-done recent show. But, yeah. Is there, is is. there a, putting Jason Kadem's shows aside, mm-hmm. and, I, and I say this as a cheat, because, frankly, once you do that, can you name another network show that you love? Ooh, <laughs> Com- drama? Yes, drama. I'm sorry, drama. Wow. That's a really good question. I have been you told know, the good wife is good. Everyone says that. <laughs> That's the line. Everyone says, I hear the good wife is good. I started, I started watching it. <laughs> I watched the pilot of The Good Wife. I thought it was that good. That is yeah, a but if you really take, good if question. You, I mean, if you take Friday Night Lights and Parenthood out, mm-hmm. what drama do you think on, the, on, on network television is something you go, oh, well, because it's, it's CSI or it's or it's you know Law and Order or it's yeah. Well, because you, well, know, you can't. A, I mean, right. unless you're Jason, you can't sell a non-procedural to a network. I mean, the thing that made me want to go work on Parenthood. What was this amazingly beautifully crafted family drama? Try and go sell one of those. You can't. You can't sell that. It you is need hard. A franchise. I think people are finding different ways. You know, like Revenge was basically yeah. the Count of Monte Cristo, but now everybody, you know, everybody, we want our revenge this year. Right. You know, literally every network is saying that now. What's our, you know, what's our version of it? So there's ways in. Maybe if you do some big heightened soap like that, I don't know. But that is uh, that's a really good question because I, you know, yeah, where's it gone? As certain people will say, the problem is. Network still means broadcast, not narrowcast. And if you want to, you know, if you want to be arty, go write your show for cable. But yeah. that, yeah. But the thing is, All in the Family was broadcast, and Mash was sure. broadcast. All these wonderful shows that we've talked about before were there were standards kids. and practices. I think that's also oh, part even, of the even equation. Will and Grace. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's yeah, a that's good the thing. Example. Will, and, I mean, I, I was uncommonly lucky to get to work on that show. But that was a show that was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Well, half hour. I still think you know? I think Network still does half hour well, ironically, yeah. because mm-hmm. for I mean, I have a few theories. One is that they're cheaper. Yeah, and people aren't as scared. 
And two, I think the writer's voice in half hour and kind of the language-based drive of those shows can sometimes elevate things. Um, And you don't have to do procedurals. Right, right. It's just, I mean, it's it's, to try to go out into the network world right now and sell a grown-up show is brutal. Mm. It's just, it's brutal. I mean, you you have to sub, you have to say, you have to say it's going to be a soap, and then hope that you don't write it as a soap. You know, or I mean, it's it's almost impossible to write and a grown-up, interesting show on that. Well, and don't you think that that's also the part of, part of the problem is like in order to sell something, you have to sell something you don't intrinsically love, and therefore the love doesn't get on the page, and therefore you're really kind of handy. I mean, I feel like you're, you're like doing a trust fall with yourself. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of the problem that we can't even talk about these shows, and 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 even when I was, you know, when I was waiting to hear if Awkward was going to get picked up as a pilot and I was being offered network things to like, you know, oh, they want to meet you and whatever. It was just like, I can't, I can't write something I'm not in love with. I can't do it. I can't, cause I like to write and therefore I don't want to not like to write. So I can't go into, I, I look at you guys. I don't, I can't do what you guys do. Although I would like to be David and work with Jason Kadams cause I love Friday lights. <laughs> but, um, uh, I, I don't know how to do the going on to a show that you're not in love with. And you guys have the luxury that you don't do that anymore. You, will, you won't take jobs you don't love because you understand how intrinsically hard. Well, maybe Josh would. Well, I mean, maybe you not, will. Not because of you have my, a big fancy not house. Not because of my big fancy car. house and my three cars. But um, I mean, one of them small. But um, Stately Friedman Manor. <laughs> Stately, yeah, Friedman Manor. Come over to fucking Friedman Manor. You see, see what that looks like. Um, no, I think part of it, like, I have a deal. I got assigned to a show last year. I got assigned to The Finder. That's the show they put me on. Yeah. Hart Hansen is the greatest guy in business. Hart Hansen is like Jason Kane. Like, I mean, he's the loveliest man. He's incredibly yeah. Canadian. And he's, like, he was a joy to work for. Is The Finder, like, my aesthetic? I don't know. I had a great time working on the show. We had a really fun uh, group. But it's... Well, that can, that show, can change, yeah. but that can change, I mean, if you're working with great people, that can change your experience, and I'm my sure... My parents hated it, also, by the way. <laughs> I, would get, I literally got a call after my episode from my parents, and they're like, well, I gather you did what you were paid to do. <laughs> I, uh, wow. I don't know. I, uh, I just, because it's in my head, you know, some, I feel like, you know, the past is always rosier in a rearview mirror type thing. I mean, as great as All in the Family was, it was one of my all-time favorites, groundbreaking as it was, it was based on a British show. Yeah. You know, so it's not, it's not like this, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of like, it's been going on for a while. Um, yeah, it's this thing really that we hard all feel to get is happening. extremely original content on network television, no, no doubt. Uh, is there anything, I, I wasn't going to you know, go to this yet, but is there anything uh, that you guys have, any of the new pilots? Because this, this podcast will be out in like a month or so. Uh, so are there any of the new pilots you read or saw that you are uh, particularly excited about? I mean, no, I didn't read or see anything. No. I've been working year-round on my show, so I didn't sure. look at anything. So I have no idea. I saw Nashville. I want to see that. Because I, oh. because I, I wanted to pitch that show last year. Really? And, and, uh, and I actually wanted Connie, who's the star of Nashville. Yeah. And it's great. Uh, and, yeah, and so I saw that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we'll Nashville, take this out. Yeah. I think Nashville. I mean, now maybe I've been saying I think Nashville is a better pilot than almost every other drama pilot. Mm. I, I haven't seen any other, so I can't, can't say. No, that's I think what it's I've a, seen. I, I, I mean, this is coming out in September. What oh, I fucking no, October. It's a terrible year for drama. Oh dear. Wow. It's a. Ter- I, I don't. I mean, 
There are people and, not and comedy and I wanted, for that matter. And comedy. I, I watched almost every single. Was there show. anything good? What was good? That's what I'm asking. Uh, uh, let me say this. I mean, I, I didn't look at a lot of the drama comedies. Uh, drama pods. I looked at a lot of the comedies. Um, I actually thought Save Me was really interesting. And my, yeah. friend, my friend Alexa Young is going to run that show. I agree show. with that. And I, like I think that. Anne Hesh is amazing in it. Uh, I think it's a show that needs to find itself, like most pilots do. Mm-hmm. But it's about something. Do you guys know about this show? It's a, you know, a woman who thinks she's a Latter-day prophet. And I think mm-hmm. it's a story about faith and about a woman who is trying to turn her life around. And it's got that undercurrent of capital A about capital S something mm-hmm. that I look for in a show. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it excited me. It wasn't yet another kind of by the numbers. Oh, my God. Every pilot I read this year was so and so moves back home because they have to. <laughs> Every one of them. Dad has a heart attack, so he has to move back home to. Mom's dead, so they have to. It's like, it's, I mean, I'm telling you, moving vans are going to get incredible product placement in this false comedy. It's like, it, it's fine, but get that out of the way in the opening 30 seconds and get on with the series. <laughs> no, I, I like we'll the, talk another time about why, yeah. why we think that trend uh, yeah. happened, because it, it's been coming for a while and it's been yeah. prevalent for a while. But, but I, I want. But God. I do think Save Me is going to be worth looking out for. It's it good, feels like a cable show. Yeah, it was developed as a cable show. Yeah, it was one of those. It was one of those shows like uh, Smash that uh, Greenblatt had at Showtime and brought over to NBC, and I think it could be interesting. Yeah. Um, before we get to questions from these guys, uh, talk to us, uh, Lauren and David, about breaking in. Uh, David, I tease that you have an interesting story um, because you did not. The early part of your career was not spent as a television writer. No. Tell us uh, about that. Um, I was a lawyer for seven years, um, and uh, but I'd always wanted to write. Uh, I'd always wanted to make movies, and uh, it was sort of a twofold occurrence. One was, uh, <laughs> one was I grew up in Dallas with uh, with the Wilson brothers, with Andrew, Luke, and Owen, and we were pals. You know, we carpooled since we were kids, and we hung out. And, and as we got older. We were still hanging out, and one day they're like, yeah, we're going to make a movie. I was like, okay, dude, good luck. Good luck. You're going to make a movie. And they made a movie. And I distinctly remember going to the AMC Century Theater in Dallas and sitting down and watching it and going, man, that is so – I was so jealous. I was so inspired. I was so awestruck. Um, I couldn't believe those idiots had done that. <laughs> I mean, literally, they, their their first table read of their script, they they read it was a 165 page draft, and they read everything, including the stage directions and the cut twos. They didn't know any better, you know. And these people are, are you really going to read this whole script? But anyway, so I figured, you know, that inspired me. It sort of gave me this idea of well, anybody can do it, and that is what's great about the writing business. I think it's a it's a meritocracy if you can write. You know, good work will out. So, um, so that, and then my sister got sick, and I was bitching about the law one day. And, you know, she basically said, well, what do you want to do? And I told her, and she said, we'll do it. You know, what are you waiting for? Look at me. Um, I'm a perfect example of why you don't want to wait to follow, to, I mean, to follow your dreams, as corny as it sounds. So, um, so I did. I quit. I went into Wade Smith's office, and I said, I quit. And he thought I was nuts, and my family thought I was nuts. I had a wife and two kids at the time. Um, we picked up, we moved to a cabin in the hills of Tennessee, and I wrote, I sat down to write my million dollar screenplay. You know, I was like, here I go. How, how you know, did you know what to do? How did you know how format or structure or whatever? Books. Yeah. I bought books. Um, I had friends out here. My cousin was at the time uh, an agent's assistant. I had him send me scripts, um, and I just, you know, I just started writing. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I wrote some shit, I'm sure, for that first, you know, for that first. 
Oh, I'm still writing shit. But back then, it, you know, I didn't know it was shit. It was, it was, right. it was a year. Uh, but I finally, I finally came up with a screenplay that I optioned to, of all people, LeVar Burton, um, and, uh, who had a deal at Showtime. And he, bought, he optioned my script with his own money, not his production company's money, because I ran into him last year in town, and we were catching up. Goes, you know, that was my money. My wife still lets me, does not let me forget that, because nothing happened to it, you know. Um, but I took that as a sign that, okay, maybe you can do this. I moved out here. Very long story short is there were some dark times, some very dark times. During this time, we had our fourth child unplanned. Apparently, you can't be on the pill and take antibiotics at the same time. Um, important safety tip for those of you out there. If you take nothing else yeah. from this panel. I just remember, and you will. Yeah, my dad's saying, why, why is Megan having sex with you if she's sick? And I was like, Dad, I can't explain it. Anyway. Anyway, um, so I have a kid, my fourth kid. I haven't worked. I've been out here a year. Um, I had yeah, been so how long around, was it without work? A year? A year. Okay. And, and coming, believe me, coming from Grundy County, Tennessee to Los Angeles sure. to Santa Monica, it was, I mean, it's more expensive to live here. <laughs> um, and so it was, it got really dark. I actually called my old firm, I remember, and said, you know, if I were to come back, would there still be something there? And then, I mean, literally what happened was one of my kids was at a, got invited to a birthday party at a park, and I was at the park, and he was playing with another kid, and the dad came over, and we started chatting, and it was David Kissinger, um, who I was, you know, obsessed and thrilled to meet because it was Henry Kissinger's son. Um, and later, a friend of mine who was in the, said, dummy, do you know who he is? He's the head of NBC studio. Give him your stuff. Uh, I was like, ah, I don't want to be that guy. You know, like, hey, I met you at the park. Can I send you my specs? Um, but he was like, no, that's how it works. Do it. So I did, and he liked wow. him, and he got me an agent, uh, meeting with an agent and right. on April Fool's Day, which I thought I was being punked. And then I got a meeting on Everwood a week later and just hit it off with Greg Berlani. Um, and I remember I, I, I lied about how many kids I had. Because I was afraid that he was going to, you know, that I was going to be like the old, the old, you know, white guy with kids. It wasn't going to get a job or something. I, was, I mean, I literally, I don't know why I did that to this day. It was so dumb. But anyway, that's how I, that's how I got the job. And I started on Everwood and... and there you go. How That's long great. were you on Everwood? Till the end. Three right? years, yeah. Three years. Uh, well, I, I came in beginning of the second season, stayed there till the end of season four, where we wrote three alternate endings, and they decided to use the one where the series doesn't come back. So, uh, but that was a great experience. It must have been a crash course for you, too, being in the room and doing a, a weekly show. Absolutely. I used to take a legal pad into the room and take notes, and it drove Berlani crazy. He's like, why are you writing down? What are you writing down? I was like, I don't know. Are you supposed to take notes in the room? You know? And, and no, you're not. Uh, at least according to him. So it was a complete and total crash course. Um, in a good way. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Lauren, tell us about your background. Where did you come from? What was the stuff you were putting in your brain as a, a young person? As a young person? Well, I, I, my influences were the Muppets. And uh, I'm going to date myself. And, uh, and I liked the dark. I mean, like, that shit you never can make for kids anymore. Like, the Goonies, like, they don't make that stuff anymore. It's got a dark edge to it, which I really like, which I also think comes through in my writing. There's a little darkness to my show that I think is what kids really respond to. They don't want all bright and sunny. So we don't feel that way all the time, and then with that comes something. But um, I always wanted to be a writer, and, uh, like, what a young age. But I'm the dumb kid in my family. I come from a total family of nerds, and... I was the, you know, the one with the personality. So, um, 
I say that with all due respect to my parents because they have personalities. I think my dad has like a touch of Asperger's or something, um, which is why he told me he hated my show. But um, you know, he didn't. He doesn't hate my show. He just doesn't watch it. Um, so uh, yeah, so I had to you know take care of myself uh, for a long time, and uh, I actually was like a latchkey kid where my parents like worked, and I literally was left at home from the age of six to through high school, which was totally fine, and unless my brother totally farted on my head or something in the afternoon. Um, but uh, I watched, like, every rerun of, like, The Brady Bunch in, like, Three's Company. Like, I lived for television, and I had unregulated cable, so I watched, like, this terrible Piazza Dora movie called Butterfly at a very early age that left a huge, because about incest, that just, like, left this really weird whole feeling of, like, your dad can do what to you? So um, I was, like, 10. <laughs> These are terrible things. But I was, like, also, like, watched... I watched everything, and I became obsessive, like, regurgitator of movies and stuff. And, you know, my mom would be like, I think your writing's pedestrian. Like, again, I was a dead... I was a, the dumb kid in my family. So I, um, I went to college. Um, I went to Bryn Mawr because I thought that would make me smart to my parents. And then I didn't like it because it was all women and very weird. And um, transferred and graduated from Claremont McKenna, and everybody had guns, so I didn't like that either. <laughs> So um, while I was in college, I had to figure out what I was going to do, and I worked at a think tank and a financial consulting firm, and uh, I worked for the McNaller News Hour when it was the McNaller, Mc, McNaller News Hour, and I'm sure most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. It's another language. But anyways, it was really fancy, and, um, and I realized very quickly what I didn't want to do because that was all really boring. And um, I started writing again and got an internship for uh, feature producers. And from there, the next year, I wrote a terrible screenplay called The Plight for Mr. Wright, which was um, the heroine in her failing attempts to find a job decides to find a husband, which then came kind of true towards the end. I couldn't find a job. And I was like, who am I going to marry? And uh, by then, college was coming to a close. There's only so many people to have sex with. So... Um, because that's how you go about finding a husband. You have to sleep with a lot of people. So uh, I wound up just interning for Arnold Kobelson, who was this big action producer at the time. And then I was interned for him. And then um, I wound up becoming his assistant. And after a year of like being on his desk and like being in a constant state of anxiety because I had to make sure... Because um, he was in production on four movies. And I had to like make sure everything was triple confirmed. And then had to notate it all the time. And that... You didn't send him to Sergio Jr. to uh, tailor his suits because he only saw Sergio Sr. I mean, come on. I didn't know there was a, a Sergio Jr. So after all of this, I you know, was just reading great. They were working with the best of the best screenwriters, and I wanted to write. And I wound up with a friend who had a better position than me. A story editor in features is not the same thing as a story editor in television. But my friend Brad was a story editor, and we wound up coming up with a movie. We sold it quietly on the side no joke, and then got totally fucked in the deal, and I was like, from now on, I'm, I'm going to fucking write it myself, because I had a friend write it, and we, we had story credit, but I was attached to produce, and they wouldn't let me produce it. So, long story short, after getting fucked, I said, I'm, from now on, I'm going to be my own writer, and I started writing, and I wrote with a writing partner for a couple years, and then we broke up during the strike, which was kind of awesome, and that's where I found my voice. I wrote a play. Um... I sold a bunch of stuff along the way, but had dark years too, like David, where I was just, but, by, but I was not like Josh, where I didn't have golden handcuffs, so I could still afford my $850 apartment, um, which is what That's I recommend I to everybody. Dark years. Uh, what'd you say? I never had any dark years. Well, I know, because you had to chase bad jobs. So, um, 
don't do that. So anyway, um, in in there, I th- I would I would contend I have maybe a little more character, but um, I'm kidding. No. Anyway, so. Um, <laughs> uh, she never like, met Josh 1.0. Yeah. <laughs> She's about to. That's what I was afraid of. So. Um, no, I mean, I wasn't. I think anybody would take a bad job when they're just looking to get a job to write. I mean, I wouldn't say that there's a bad job when it's a job. But um, along the way, I sold a bunch of pilots and a couple movies, and uh, you know, and you have lean years, and then the strike happened, and I wrote a play about the love triangle that was going on in my head at the time. I literally got matched with some guy I was totally obsessed with watch, watch, watching. We got matched on eHarmony, and I was like, oh my god. This is amazing. The secret works. And it, it was. And then um, we, our kind of love story petered out. We actually had a, like, a date on the strike line. I'm not kidding. And he was leading the chance, which made it really awkward. But uh, his then buddy asked me out, squeezed the shit out of my tit. I had a bruise. I had to write about it because he never called me afterwards. So I, I'm not kidding. I wrote a play about it called uh, Love on the Line. I wrote a play uh, and wrote the story of this love triangle, which was all totally true. Not only did I write it, then I, they had this night called um, TV Takes the Stage. Ed Zuckerman, Sean yeah. Cassidy put this thing on. My play was like the hit of the thing. I wrote about these two guys. We were still on strike. So like, I put it on these two guys. I was making fun of them. <laughs> like, I wrote a play about them. I changed their names, obviously. And um, put it on. Somebody played them. <laughs> And it was this huge hit. Totally changed everything for me. I got so many meanings out of it. And then I, like, as I'm, like, going, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing in the world. Um, at the, the night before we're putting on the big play, this is before I knew it was going to be fabulous, I walk, and I see them walking together as I'm walking to walk out. And I, no joke, put up my fucking picket sign and, like, ran and threw it down and ran home just in case they saw me and were like, oh, dude, I totally know that girl. Yeah, you know that girl? I know that girl. She's totally weird. <laughs> so, um, anyways, I wrote it, <laughs> which became like, a, by the way, one of them I'm still friends, I became friends with because I sent him my play. Because um, I was like, if somebody wrote a play about me, I'd want to read it. Anyways. <laughs> so, um, What's your address? Yeah. So, anyways, long story short. your new pilot. This is how you make it in the business. You write about yourself. And uh, somewhere along the way, I had a meeting with MTV and I sold them a little pilot. And it got <laughs> made. There you go. It's just that easy, you guys. <laughs> I say, uh, we have... take your humiliation and turn it exactly. into something. Uh, we have time for like one question. Does anyone have a burning question? Is it burning? Yes, it hurts. All right. <laughs> Stand up. I'm going to hold this. Don't touch it. Can we get back to the fact that you lied about your children for a second? How long did you keep up the rumors that you didn't have four children? I mean, was this like the series finale? They show up at the party, and then Greg's like, what? That's a good question. Did you ever come clean? Or is I'm this not it? sure when I confessed. I'm really not sure what. Actually, it must have been at the rap party that year because all the writers were invited. And, um, and kids were not, yet I guess oddly felt the need to tell him. He thought it was funny. He thought it was funny. Um, I'm still embarrassed about it, obviously. Uh, one more question. For David and Josh, um, as far as you supervising other writers, is it something that's part of your deals, your development deals, or something you guys wanted to do? And do you find that people that you're developing with from your staffs, or were they people your agencies recommended? That's me. Um, 
I developed with someone. I developed with someone last year, I, and I, it's it's weird. I, the word supervise is such an odd word. I mean, last year I quote unquote supervised right. Neil Cross, who created Luther. Um, <laughs> so, like right. to say I supervised the guy who created Luther is absolutely ridiculous. Like I translated American television for him is basically what I did, and like listened to him when they gave him shitty notes and nodded my head and said, "I feel you, brother." Like that's the extent of my producing. Neil Cross is to drink with him when he gets shitty notes um, and uh, this year I'm, I'm actually going to go out with something else where I'm supervising another one of my betters um, people who, who don't have time to run shows because they have big fancy feature lives like I don't which because I gave mine up uh, to help <laughs> make more money in Calcutta <laughs> to make so less money so basically you supervise and alcoholism and now you make more money supervising other people I only wish I only wish my life was as bad as you think it is <laughs> think your life is bad. I just think you're a sellout. Uh, that's my point. If I had sold out half as much as you think we did, I wouldn't be here. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, David, who are yeah, the people in, here? In my case, um, in my case, it is uh, this one pride. It is it is covered under my deal, um, but it, it's 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 basically depending on whether or not I like the material. And in this case, I really love the material. And the writers are feature guys who've never done TV before, and they're very young. Um, I loved their features that, that were sent to me, and it's a high school show, and I've done you know fucking eight years of high school shows. So I guess the studio figured that there was a fit there. Um, so these writers came out of the feature world. In the other case, you know, I I, I did I, I was already working with the person, and I you know. I don't know how these guys. I you, you sort of always have your ear to the ground. You know who the good writers are in your staffs or even on your friend shows. It's like you know you say, oh so so she you know she's going to be awesome. Who's going to be the first one to lucky to snap her up? You know or whatever. So at least I, I feel like that's part of the gossip circle that goes on. Is you're always constantly hearing about. Um, the rising stars in, in, in various places. So, and, and by the way, the supervising part, you know, it's kind of like kind of like doing a rewrite. In, in theory, it should be less work. It's not always that because you know sometimes you're sometimes it just it just takes more. But if you enjoy it and you like the people and you think they can do it, you know. It do you feel like rewarding. sometimes they pay you? They're paying for your expertise to make sure the script is good. Well, I, I feel like if I'm going to get involved and my name's going to be attached or on something, I don't want it to suck, you know? So it's like you have right. to... But where you... Re How can I say this? The, I find the hardest problem in that process and also in rewriting is when somebody just doesn't get a voice properly. It's like the structure is fine in the script and the scenes are there. But if somebody doesn't have the voice of a character, there's really no way to fix that other than rewriting the scene for them. Mm -hmm. So somebody can be really good with structure, really good with story, and yet if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't sound like Tammy, you know, you got to make it. You know, Tammy wouldn't say that. Tam, you know, yeah. it's that idea. So that's where it gets. Challenging and very time-consuming to go in and have because you can't give that note. You can try and give that note, you know, make her sound like her. But if the person that anyway, so um, anyway, gotcha. Uh, let's very quickly uh, go down the line, starting with Jeff. Tell us what are you watching these days? What's what are you getting excited about? Maybe some things that these guys haven't heard of. Um, uh, ben mentioned to me when he recruited me for tonight that uh, that I would be called upon to talk about the British comedies I illegally <laughs> download on BitTorrent. Um, <laughs> 
so uh, I'm going to mention a couple of them to you now. Um, I love the thick of it, and it's now out on Hulu, so all you guys can see it legally. It's the uh, it's Armando Yanucci created and directs the show. If you know Veep, that was his show as well. Uh, the and he also turned it into a feature called In the Loop. So <laughs> I love the thick of it, and I watch the episodes over and over again to see how they're put <laughs> together. Uh, I also love Peep Show which is uh, Jesse Armstrong and Sam Bain, who are two British writers I absolutely revere. They also worked on The Thick of It, and uh, Peep Show is just one of the coolest, greatest buddy comedies ever done. And that's on Netflix streaming. Yes, it is on Netflix streaming, so you can see that as well. And I think Stephen Moffat is a fucking genius, and I'm so glad he's getting recognition for Sherlock, because this guy has been writing at an incredibly high level for years and years, Coupling is great. Yeah. Like the, if you go back and it's, look, at you movies, don't expect it to be as good as great. it is. It's great. It's like it's like Friends in the Fourth Dimension. There are so many interesting writing and storytelling. The way that he does things. And if you like Sherlock, you should seek out his show Jekyll, which I oh, also think yeah. is fucking incredible. Um, in closer to home, I love. Oh, and uh, Armstrong and Bain also have a new show that hasn't that comes out on DVD in the UK in the fall called Fresh Meat, which I've talked about in this room before that I love, which is an hour comedy about freshmen in college. And it's great. If there's any way you can see it, but darn it, please check it out. Um, um, they're going to come after. Yeah, I know. Closer to home, I love Breaking Bad. I'm very interested to see what they're doing this year. It's pretty I, I, underrated. I, yeah, I think, I mean, that's the thing. Everybody loves it. Um, I think Breaking Bad is great. Um, I love The Newsroom. Um, I do think that it's maddening. It. I really love it. I really do. Listen, you can give him shit for all the things that are wrong with the show, but he is writing at such a high level. Yes. I mean, it's mm. awe-inspiring to see how he does what he does. And when they crap on him for saying things like Internet Girl, which he shouldn't say in interviews, okay, <laughs> it's just because we're all jealous. He's great. And I really think, I can't, I mean, I, you know, I just, I, you know, I thought Studio 60 was a joke. I relentlessly made fun of that show. <laughs> this show is the real deal. And I really think it's worth, if you haven't seen it, Go back and check it out because yeah. it's beautiful. Um, even even just in moments, it, yeah. It, you know, it, if the whole thing doesn't hold together for you in moments, moments. it can be great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and there's one, one more <laughs> British show, 2012. Has anybody seen 2012? Yes. It's really good. It's about the the team that plans the Olympics, oh, and no. uh, it's a cool. really funny show. And I think it's still running on BBC America. I like that show yeah. a lot too. Josh, That's my run now. Again, I'm going to his house and just. <laughs> wanted, you know, I. Um, well, you don't have enough money to own a computer to fix <laughs> The problem I have is that um, I have so much money <laughs> from selling out that all I do all day long is sit in a bag of money. Talk about the, the peasants that you have act out little playlets for. I do. Well, I, I mean, I own people. Um, <laughs> So I just, if I find an episode I like, I find, I get the script, and then I just get a bunch of people that I own, and they come to my house, and they just do it right there for me, and if I don't like it, I make Guys, them do it Guys, you pick up at a paint shop. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, it's just going to sound so ridiculous, because I think this is like a cliche, but every day at lunch, I watch um, an old episode of The Wire, nice. and um, I do it as many days as I, as I can. If I'm not working, I sit and I eat lunch by myself uh, at my desk, and I just watch uh, an episode of The Wire, and I'm going back through the whole thing again. And I think that David Simon said, um, apropos of, of our conversation this evening, um, he said, I think one of the most important things 
about television that's ever been said. When when he got the wire, when he was when he found out he was going to do it, you know, he's an old he's a newspaper guy. And to newspaper guys, the most important thing is column inches. It's space. It's how much space do you have on the front page of the paper or whatever page it is. And he went to the people that he hired, writers, again, a lot of more TV writers, they were journalists, they were novelists, and he said, "We have 13 hours of front page space on HBO. What are we going to do with it?" And we talk about this a lot when we talk about pilots. And, um, you know, it is when you sit down to write, it is your one opportunity to be as smart and as good uh, and as meaningful as you can be. And I mean, and I think that that, that that is my frustration with the network television is I still have this grand, now I think, illusion that it can be what it was, which is that you can put 45 minutes on television on and 12 million people can watch it and that it matters. And I think that every day I watch The Wire, a little part of me cries inside because I feel like those days may be gone for that. Now, it still exists in a lot of other places. Thank God that it does. Um, but I, I just that would be my one piece of advice to anybody, which is, is prime fucking real estate television is. Don't fucking waste it writing bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Advice. And I'm going to watch Awkward. Yeah. Oh, you, you got to watch it. <laughs> Me too. Uh, David, is there anything you're watching that you're getting excited about? Uh, the Newsroom, too. I like The Newsroom. Uh, I think Louis great. I love that he can do whatever the fuck he wants on that show, and you never know what you're going to get. Perfect example. Yeah. I just, yeah. I love, I, I think Louis funny. Um, and honestly, you know, this is, this is probably because I do have four boys, but... Um, I think if you really want to, you know, if you, you just spend a lot of time in post, what am I trying to say? I think Survivor is one of the best episodes of storytelling that's out <laughs> oh, there. Oh, nice. I mean, it's really interesting that show to me how well they do constructing drama each week. You watch that show, and I just sit there and I think about what they must be doing in post, and I realize they're looping a lot of stuff and going back later. And I just think Survivor is inherently a very uh, a good, it, it's good storytelling, yeah. even though it's reality television. Yeah. Yeah. And awkward. I love awkward. Yeah, correct. You've never seen Awkward. <laughs> but I have seen every episode of Friday Night Lights, and I would say that's one of the best shows of ever. Yep. Ever. You said, well, t- say what you said to me earlier about how you rated any given episode. Oh, it's like how many tiers, of course, because I'm a crier. So I'm like, that's a three-tier episode, that's a five-tier episode. Like, that's like one of the best. I mean, you worked on, I mean, I, it would give my right hand I'll give away my show to come work with you and Jason Cadence. <laughs> when you give away your show, can I have it? Sure. <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't give away my show, although I don't think you're gonna like it, Josh. You're, no. Josh, you're gonna like it. Uh, I don't know if you're gonna like it. Now I feel like I own I own uh, all of my so called life on D V D. Does that give me a shot? Some people could compare it to in the same in the, the realm. I I, it's not as dramatic as my so-called life. I mean, but you might you might like it. I'm gonna like it. You might like, like it. it. I don't like know. It. Now like I'm you. nervous. I've like totally you. been no, bantering no, no, you, gonna, and now I'm gonna be so You send me. Uh, you give me your email, and I'm gonna call you. I'm gonna tell you if I like it, and I'm gonna send you the play I write about you tonight. <laughs> Please give a like round of applause that. to all of our guests. Uh, Please give a round of applause to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and yeah. Meltdown Comics and to H Six LA. Thanks to Dan Byrne and Kate Makuchi for doing our theme song. Goodbye. Now leaving Nerdist.com.